hello everybody. Thank you for joining me today for this episode of Activist Lawyer. I'm Sarah Henry and I'm in our lovely studio in Uri in Granite Exchange in the Granite Podcast Studio and I am absolutely delighted to be joined by Dr. Joe Wilding via Zoom over in London. Hi Joe. <laughs> Hi. Um, so just by way of introduction, Joe Wilding was a barrister at Garden Court Chambers in London. We've had a few members on from Garden Court Chambers, which is excellent, specialising in immigration and asylum work since 2006. Joe is a researcher and lecturer at Sussex University, research, researching issues around legal aid and understanding demand, provision, client access and financial viability in immigration and social welfare legal aid. Joe has written a book and several reports on access to immigration legal advice, following on from a PhD which explored the legal aid market in England and Wales, and recently undertook research for the Welsh Government on the availability and adequacy of asylum legal aid advice in Wales, and a UK-wide immigration advice mapping project commissioned by Refugee Action. She previously worked for Bristol Law Centre as a casework assistant and Bristol Mind as an advocate. Before all of that, she was a clown, which is <laughs> something I really want to get into. I know this will be a little bit of a different journey, which which is great in terms of your, your legal background. Jo. So welcome and thank you for joining us on Activist Lawyer today. It's great to have you, you here. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Okay, so we might go back to the beginning then, just in terms of your your legal journey. Um, yeah. How did you start out and how did you end up in your current position, I guess? So, um, yeah, it probably is a different journey from the average. I had done a degree in combined studies, which I loved, and then I went and did a master's in exercise and health science, thinking that I wanted to go into health promotion and kind of encouraging people to live healthy lives and rehab and so on. Um, and I realized during that master's degree that it was all very sort of, I suppose, neoliberal, if you like, just the idea that you shift responsibility onto an individual for living a healthy lifestyle, despite these kind of systemic obstacles, like the planning system and where they have access to cheap, healthy food or whether they have access to cheap, healthy food and all of that. So that kind of led me into a more political way of thinking. And from there, I got involved with uh, road protests and environmental protests in the late 1990s. Um, spent quite a long time living up a tree and then down a tunnel. And as a result <laughs> of all of that, I got arrested a few times. Yeah. Um, the first time I was arrested, we had a barrister defend us and I didn't really enjoy that. So the next time I defended myself um, and I loved it. Um, but I also realized that one of the things I was good at in life was talking and arguing and that I could do that for other people as well that didn't have the voice and um, that I had. So I, um, I started looking into the possibility of qualifying as a lawyer um, with a view to doing that sort of protest stuff and social welfare stuff and judicial review and so on. Um, so I, I, I did the, the law conversion course part-time and at the same time I was working at Bristol Law Centre and I was working at Bristol Mind and seeing firsthand really how much people just needed that advocate by their side. Mm -hmm. um, then the Iraq war started, so 
obviously I had to go. <laughs> um, I, 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 I um, wrote a blog um, just about the people that I met because I felt that the mainstream media was talking a lot about what political figures said and what military figures said and very little about what was happening to ordinary people living in Baghdad and in other parts of Iraq. So I just went and talked to people and wrote down the stories that they told me. Um, and that was how I ended up becoming a clown because in the hospitals there were people who had really just lost everything, children that had been through a, a terrible, terrible time. Mm -hmm. And just simple things like blowing bubbles yeah. kind of just took them away from that violence and that horror for a minute gave them something else to think about and so that that then led on to the circus and then I came back and I finished qualifying as a lawyer but really it's still all about for me being a lawyer was still all about just standing beside people who were going through a terrible time mm -hmm. listening to their stories and telling their stories mm -hmm. um, so that was what I loved about being being a barrister. Yeah, so, gosh, such an interesting journey. Um, <laughs> um, I guess in terms of practice, um, you know, how do you find it now between, you're now an academic, have you left practice behind you or do you still, you know, involve yourself in, in some public interest matters or cases? So I, yeah, I practiced full time for, I think, nine years and then just the sort of, difficulty of combining that with being as I was then a single parent and a very junior barrister and the pay and everything made me mm. think about what else I could do that would still kind of still kind of inspire me and still feel fulfilling so I, I started doing research um, and then gradually stopped doing casework altogether. But in my new job at Sussex, I will be co-supervising the immigration law clinic. So I'll be doing hopefully a bit more casework oh, again um, yeah. and working directly with people. But in between times, I've done quite a bit of um, writing expert reports on access to legal advice where that's been needed for judicial review cases and so on. Mm -hmm. So it, 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 has been, it has been a lot less casework and sort of human contact than I would have liked but hopefully that's coming back a bit now. Well I mean the time that you've committed and the dedication to your research and your findings are so invaluable especially for people working within the legal aid um, provision of law in general but specifically immigration and asylum which is what your work really sheds a light on that and um, your book that you published the legal aid market I would really anybody who is working within um legal aid especially as I said in immigration will really relate to your findings and they're quite stark um, you know I mean just reading a review here one of the findings there are only two things that legal aid lawyers can do to mitigate the losses they inevitably face by undertaking publicly funded advice work reduce the time they put into each fixed fee case or reduce the number of legally aided cases they take on and I mean that just <laughs> speaks for itself and anybody listening who works in that area will be shaking their head and saying that's it and that's the struggle we see here I mean a lot of your work speaks to mm. England and Wales not of your findings, but it really, it's the same here in 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 the north, in terms of um, really solicitors working and barristers, um, in legal aid 
legally aided immigration and asylum services are pushed to the absolute limit at the moment. They're at absolute capacity and have been for some time. And that means that there are people who just have zero access to any representation from the very outset. Zero. Nothing. Yeah. So, I mean... You know, apart from that, that that's a general finding of your book. But what else? I mean, how can we resolve this? What can be done? Because I'm sure any of the findings that you have uncovered, um, you know, within your work and the people that you spoke to and researched, it really it will go across all sectors and perhaps um, even into the, the whole argument around criminal um, work mm. as well at the moment. So how did you go about um, setting out in that research journey, Joe? Yeah, I mean, and I think that that's, it's true that nothing in the book is particularly going to surprise anybody that works in the field. But what people have said is it's really good to have it all sort of pulled together mm-hmm. um, and to sort of demonstrate how at system level you get those problems generated. So I did focus on England and Wales because England and Wales have a different legal aid system from Scotland yeah. and from Northern Ireland. Um, and certainly similar problems <clears throat> Sorry. certainly similar problems uh, seem to arise in Northern Ireland. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of it was about having seen it from the point of view of a practitioner and thinking we needed something that actually exposed and explored and examined all of those problems that, that, that practitioners face in their day-to-day life. But then um, one thing that... I wanted to do was just have that all laid out clearly so it became more apparent what some of the solutions might be. Now, for England and Wales, it was explicitly conceived from 2007 onwards as this market for legal aid with a view to moving into you know, competitive tendering. Mm-hmm. And that was not the case in Scotland or in Northern Ireland. Mm-hmm. But of course, it's still provided by private firms and a few charities doing the work directly for the client and then billing the state for it. So the mm-hmm. system is in, in many ways quite similar. But the idea in England and Wales was that this, um, this market was going to, then this competitive market was going to ensure um, high quality services because providers would be competing for clients but also to ensure that the state and the taxpayer paid you know the lowest possible cost and it really doesn't work as a market and this goes beyond legal aid to all kinds of public services and we saw it for example with prisons and probation you can't really have a competitive market run for profit in something which poor people actually need and so in England and Wales as you said in that that extract that you read out you know there's a constant threat to quality because people cannot afford as a business to do all this work at a loss so you either have to do less of the work or do it at lower quality and of course if you're doing it at lower quality Mm -hmm. the client doesn't get what they need Mm -hmm. um you know, the, the tribunal doesn't necessarily get what it needs either. So it has these knock-on effects on all the other organisations that are involved. Um, but people actually lose their asylum cases yeah. because the work hasn't been done to a good enough standard. But if you carry on trying to do it to the same standard and keep the access open for clients, not reduce the number of clients you'll take on, 
you end up in the situation that we had with Refugee Legal Centre or Refugee Migrant Justice, mm-hmm. as it became, where they simply can't sustain that and they yeah. ended up in administration. Or you have what we see now with a lot of firms in England and Wales, and I think a lot of the providers in Northern Ireland as well, mm-hmm. that they will take on fewer and fewer of these fixed fee cases or of legal aid cases mm-hmm. because the hourly rate in Northern Ireland is too low. And they simply can't afford to do the work. So they take on tiny numbers of cases or they shift their capacity into judicial review because they're at least, you know, if they get paid at all, then they're paid much closer to the market rate. Mm -hmm. And so you end up with people unable to access legal aid advice at all. And the deficit for England and Wales is at least 6,000. So when you compare the number of new asylum claims by a main applicant, so ignoring all the dependents, just the main applicant's asylum claims in a year with the number of new cases opened in a year in England and Wales. Cases opened are at least 6,000 fewer, oh. but not all of those cases opened will be a new asylum claim. Some of them will be um, where somebody's got to the end of their five years leave. So we don't know how big the deficit is, but it's bigger than 6,000. And that is a lot of people going through the asylum system without having a lawyer. Yeah. Oh, gosh. And when you see the government and the media highlight, you know, this broken immigration <laughs> system, surely this problem in itself, this lack of funding and lack of access to legal aid has to be at the core of, of this. You know, I know there are so many issues with immigration and, you know, even today's media spin on it was I think the Albanians are getting a, a good um, dig in the, the, the headlines when you can see that there's a firm stance on immigration and um, concerning Albanian asylum seekers and this is what Pretty Patel's new position is obviously in the lead up to all of these um, you know votes and shifts within the government itself but funding is so um, has to be at the core of this problem and you're sh- people should be shocked to learn that um, fees have not increased here. I think they're, they're comparing it to the price of a Big Mac over the years and how with inflation you know the, the cost of a Big Mac Mac in McDonald's has gone up to a certain, but legally aid fees remain the exact same. And we see that highlighted with the criminal barristers as well here on, you know, strike at the moment. It's it's just baffling. And the suggestions yeah. that I've come across, things like, well, bigger firms should do some pro bono work. But does that solve the problem? I mean, corporate lawyers getting involved in asylum work, it's very, very niche and very complex from, well, I find it complex, but... I mean, if you think about it, you've got a small cohort of really highly trained specialist people and you're saying rather than pay them to do the work, we should have people that don't normally do the work just pop in and do some as a bit of charity. Like, I don't necessarily want my brain surgery done by someone that doesn't really do it but fancies a bit of charity. So I think, you know, funding absolutely is one of the main key things. Um, and you can't change this without funding. So the Home Office has this plan that it will widen asylum dispersal. So the process whereby an asylum seeker will be dispersed to any part of the UK on a no-choice basis for their accommodation and support while they wait for an outcome to their asylum claim. At the moment, there's certain dispersal towns and cities around the UK. Um, And the idea is you widen that so 
people are accommodated everywhere throughout the UK. And there's a lot of local authorities saying, well, look, we're happy to host refugees. We don't have a problem with that. But there's no legal advice yeah, here. And when you look at the maps that have come up within the various different reports, you can see there just is no access to legal advice in great chunks of the UK. So in Scotland, it's very highly concentrated in Glasgow because that's been the only dispersal city. Okay. Um, in Northern Ireland, it's concentrated in Belfast. And then in, in Wales, it's very concentrated in the south of Wales with one small um, you know, very determined provider in the north of Wales. There's huge chunks of the southwest of England, of the east of England, but really across massive parts of England, there's no access to legal advice. And the Home Office did convene this roundtable discussion um, to try and kind of look at solutions to that because they suddenly realised with all this pushback from local authorities that actually there is a problem mm -hmm. But they wanted what they referred to as creative solutions and said, we can't do anything about funding. And everybody said to them, there is no solution to this without funding. So one of the solicitors um, that took part in my UK-wide mapping that's in Northern Ireland mm -hmm. said that they had come into this about 30 years ago and the rate was still £43.25 yeah. an hour. It hadn't changed. No. And the cost of everything has changed since then and that's your your complete turnover that's not your profit and i think there's a lot of um efforts in government to present turnover as profit and say well there's no problem they're just being greedy and that's really not the case but i do also think as well as having to fund legal advice properly there's a lot that the home office could do within its own system to reduce the demand. So I talk a lot in my work about demand and supply. And the Home Office actually needs to take responsibility for the demand that it generates in the asylum system through, first of all, poor quality decision-making and refusing cases that should have been allowed that then generates a need for appeals work or judicial review work. So that's one thing. But we've also seen statistics recently that I mean, over three quarters of asylum applications are allowed now, mm. um, which might indicate better decision making in the Home Office. But you have certain nationalities with a rate of over 90% grant rates. So Eritrea, yeah. Syria, Afghanistan, um, Sudan, um, Iran has a grant rate in the 80%. Um, why do those people need to go through a full asylum procedure? rather than saying, are we satisfied this person's from Syria, Afghanistan, Eritrea, yeah. Sudan? Is there a reason, uh, like a clear and outstanding reason not to grant? No, then grant them leave. And if they're not granted leave, then you reroute them back into the mainstream procedure. But why do they need to go through the full, you know, placing into asylum support, going through the screening interview, the pre-interview questionnaire, the interview, yeah. the decision process that lasts for two years yeah. for someone from a country where 97% or 98% of people are going to be granted. What a waste of resources of legal, re uh, you know, the legal profession, the home office mm -hmm. itself, the asylum support and accommodation when those people could be moving on into mainstream um, welfare support yeah. and mainstream housing and getting their English lessons and getting help into work and getting help to move on with their lives 
while you focus the decision-making resources and the legal advice resources on the cases that actually need those decisions to be thought about. Well, I mean, it's currently absolutely not sustainable, but the way you address Mm. it there really makes absolute sense. And I wonder with your publication and other publications as well that address the issue, what has been done? Is there any call for even a fee review panel, um, a way to scale back this um, this structure in terms of how asylum cases are run to save resources? Or do you feel that the government are looking at these more creative <laughs> solutions mm. like Rwanda or, you know, um, other offshoring, so to speak, instead of really addressing internal remedies that could actually fix this to some extent? So uh- Apparently, there is a pilot going on in South Wales where they look at this sort of fast-track granting. Um, But there's been very, very little publicity about that. And that's, you know, that's the absolute opposite, isn't it, of what's coming out of the Home Office. There are really good people in the Ministry of Justice working on access to justice and understanding legal need. And similarly, I think there's genuinely good people in the Home Office that, that do good work when they're given the opportunity to. And um, I think there's a real split between what the civil servants are seeing and are doing and are trying to do and what's coming out at the top, you know, the ministers and and government. Um, But local authorities are definitely very onto this problem Mm -hmm. and aware of it. And, um, and, And I think one of the problems is that it's all very fragmented. So here in England and Wales, got the legal aid agency and you've got the ministry of justice and there's supposed to be this sort of divide so that one is independent of the other and they're very keen not to step on each other's toes um and then you have the home office doing separate things and coming out with things like the nationality and borders act that creates all these new types of work and the legal aid agency knows it has a capacity problem So it doesn't have any mandate to research mm-hmm. the size of its capacity problem because that was, you know, that was taken out from the old mandate of the Legal Services Commission when the Legal Aid Agency took over in 2013. So you have all these sort of fragments where there's no kind of big picture and, um, and that makes it very, very difficult to explore solutions because something saves money off someone else's budget you know one department changes save money off another department's budget so those are very difficult to get through scotland if you talk to the scottish legal aid board is 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 openly talking about systems thinking and systemic solutions and so on which is great And, and and i think their model is much better and much more sort of open to being able to kind of explore systemic solutions yeah, well, I think just knowing from some of the groups that I'm involved in here, obviously there's it's urgent reform needed across the board. And uh, as you mm-hmm. say, Northern Ireland, it's slightly different in the way we're structured around legal aid. But nonetheless, the numbers are growing in terms of people needing representation. Yeah. We've different cases coming forward. We've a lot coming up from, from Ireland, crossing the border. Yeah. And then you've got refused applications that might now go on to, you know, look for as- asylum as well. Yeah. And the pressure there on, obviously, you know, it's detrimental to people who need uh, representation, but on the solicitors and barristers themselves working within this, it's hard to get out as well because they're so committed to their clients to doing as much work but there has to be a, a breaking point at some time with, with with people working within this area when they know yeah 
that their requests, which are quite basic at times, are just not being listened to. And movement is so slow. There's no real end in sight. And I guess what we're trying to do is come up with solutions ourselves as practitioners to try and get more training, encourage other solicitors to come on and do even, you know, a small number of cases a week, try and get cases moved from maybe uh, more Belfast based uh, applications um, to to other areas. But again, everything is slow moving. And the concern there is that the money and the resources, you know, is the main thing that puts people off. Yeah getting involved and it's really sad because I mean it's it's an area that provides so much in terms of experience and you know um, rewards in terms yeah. of your career that really if this isn't addressed urgently I worry for the profession itself and we only have to look at barristers working in criminal you know and young barristers yeah. as well there to see see what's happening there and I mean I think it's fair to say that the immigration side of things is that a breaking point as well and definitely a crisis so hopefully with your findings and people rallying together to really have their voices heard and maybe pilot programs like the ones you mentioned in Wales that people really focus on that as good news stories hopefully and see Mm. that you know the results are um you know worth reviewing across the UK um so yeah but really it's one um, yeah one thing that was really interesting while I was doing the research for refugee action for the report that came out this year so the no access to justice report um sorry so during that research um I think the law society of northern ireland actually asked practitioners in northern ireland to indicate whether they actively do take on immigration work or not because when I started the research you could look at the finder tool on the Northern, uh, Northern Ireland Law Society website and it indicated there were 99 firms doing immigration and asylum legal aid work in Northern Ireland. And everyone was saying, well, that's just not the case. And when they asked people to confirm whether they did or not, they eventually came out with a list of only nine firms. And that didn't, I know there was law, uh, the Northern Ireland Law Centre wasn't on there and things like that, but... Um, you know, really, really tiny number of firms actually doing the work. And then people were saying, well, within those firms, um, you know, it might be one person doing it and that won't be their whole job. They'll be doing something else. So I think it's only very recently become clear at kind of, you know, policy level and evidence level rather than to the tiny number of people doing it. Just how tiny the immigration and asylum practitioner sector is in Northern Ireland. And then you look at the number of people that are in asylum support, and it's 825 as of last March Mm. in asylum support in Wales, overwhelmingly in Belfast. And about four-fifths of them, as a general rule of thumb, will be main applicants rather than dependents. So you've got a good 700 or so people in need of individual immigration and asylum legal advice and maybe 15 individual people doing the work it's tiny maximum it's difficult to you know collectively 
dedicate our time to really lobbying on this point as well because yeah. the work the day-to-day work is really what you're focused on so I think yeah. definitely we really need uh, an urgent review well that's kind of stating the obvious at this point but um yeah so I mean your your work really feeds into this important issue um Joe and hopefully um you know a lot of it is picked up on um for you know to make positive change are you feeding into any of the work around um proposals for the new immigration plan that everybody's talking about and how this is going to take a you know a firm stance in immigration and I guess it deals with asylum I mean a lot of our work here primarily focuses on a lot of the EU settlement kind of post-Brexit mm. era issues that we're still dealing with very vulnerable people caught in that whole whole trap as well but I mean within immigration there are so many different sectors and cohorts of people who are really really struggling um, to come to terms with the system and of course practitioners trying to get their head around new rules and new changes everything goes so fast is there any areas that you're focusing on at the moment outside of the kind of legal aid market um, that you would see as important? I mean like you say it's so kind of multifaceted and, and massive you know and as part of the research, I was also looking at the number of undocumented people around the UK. So people with no leave to remain mm-hmm. who, um, you know, might have come lawfully as a student but overstayed or as in some other capacity and fallen out of leave for whatever reason or might have failed in their asylum claim um, but never been removed for all sorts of reasons like the country actually being unsafe. Mm-hmm. Um so there's all sorts of people who have no leave to remain for a whole variety of reasons. And across the whole UK, a dire shortage of immigration advice for those people as well. And, and, and there are applications that they can make. So we estimated for London alone, um, 238,000 people who are undocumented and are eligible to make an application. So that's ignoring all the ones that don't have an application they could make. Um, And 238,000 people that could make an application and only maximum capacity of about 4,500 at the upper limit Mm -hmm. of pieces of casework, capacity for casework in a year. And so you end up with all these people with no rights no right at all, no right to rent, no right to work, no right to have a bank account, and so on. So people living in desperate circumstances, often then with the local authority having to support them. And I know local authorities in England and Wales work a bit differently from councils in in Northern Ireland. But the same thing arises, that you then have local government duties towards people who would otherwise be able to live fulfilling and independent lives. And if they want to make an application for leave to remain, they make one application, they get two and a half years of leave and have to renew and renew and renew. And then finally, at the end of 10 years, they can make an application for permanent leave to remain. And yes, huge fees for every application, which for the first four, not for the final settlement application, but for the other four, you can make an application for a fee waiver. But that's a massively complex application as well. So it takes hours and hours if they've got bank accounts and if they've got some work but can't afford the fee to get that fee waiver application done. And then 
they'll get that grant of leave with a condition of no recourse to public funds, which they can then apply to change. So, you know, you've got five applications just to maintain their leave. The first grant of leave implicitly recognises they have a long-term reason to be in the UK, whether it's that they're a child with the required length of residence or they're the parent of a child in that situation or they're a partner of a person with the right to be here or they've been here 20 years, you know, long-term reasons to be here. And yet you have this kind of, again, generation of demand, of need for immigration advice. Because if if they make a mistake on that application, they go right back to the start of the 10-year route to settlement. So it's like snakes and ladders, but with no ladders. And so people need legal advice to make sure they don't make any mistakes on those applications. They can't afford it. They can't afford the fees. So you just generate this crazy amount of demand that can't possibly be met by any amount of capacity building within the sector. And then, you know, that's one example. Then you look at things like the new um, Nationality and Borders Act, Mm -hmm. and it creates all these new kinds of legal aid work. So um, there's... One good thing is you can now get a bolt-on or you will be able to get a bolt-on for advice on um, whether somebody should enter the national referral mechanism for a decision on whether they're a victim of trafficking. So that just adds a bit to the existing work. But then there's these priority removal notices. So you can remove people from the UK quicker. And there's going to be provision for up to seven hours work on those, after which you can apply for further funding And obviously, it will operate slightly differently in each of the three legal aid jurisdictions. But this is a new kind of work, which is, you know, seven hours of work. It's quite a chunk. Tribunal appeals about age assessment. So these used to have to be done by way of judicial review. It's good that there's now a right of appeal against your age assessment. But that's another new kind of work. And then you have this rebuttal mechanism where the government decided it will differentiate between these the good refugees, the group one refugees who came via the kind of fairly mythical, safe, legal route. And then the naughty refugees, the group two refugees that managed to make their own way here and somehow survive, but will have effectively very few rights as refugees because they're group two refugees. And there's this rebuttal mechanism to try and rebut the decision to treat them as, as group two refugees. And that's another piece of work that will be funded on legal aid out what level isn't yet clear and the legal aid agency is consulting on that for England and Wales and I imagine similar processes are going on in Scotland and Northern Ireland but as I've already said it's very far from clear that there's capacity within the legal aid immigration and asylum sector to pick up all this new work so far from reducing the amount of demand to the capacity there is to meet it they're creating all this new demand really just around being hostile towards refugees and there just isn't the capacity Mm. anywhere in the UK to do it. So yeah I've worked cross-border with both jurisdictions here between Ireland and and the north in terms of immigration covering different issues, different areas for quite some time. Two very different scenarios, two very different jurisdictions. Also, the government's come up with very different solutions to the problems. For example, Ireland 
uh, after the wake of the, the pandemic recently announced a new scheme for undocumented migrants who are now able to, under certain, certain circumstances, apply for permission to remain. So some type of amnesty, you may be aware of that. And lots of those people can now enter the employment market, perhaps fill in gaps where there, there are serious gaps in employment. So we can see different rules operating, affecting different cohorts of people within the same same territory, I suppose. Oh, sorry. sorry, one of the other things that's quite interesting is how all of this interacts with devolution. Because if you look at Scotland mm. or if you look at Wales, you know, Wales have policies to be a nation of sanctuary. Yeah. Scotland would like to yes. increase um, certainly work migration and they're both completely hamstrung as is Northern Ireland mm. by the UK wide immigration policy mm. because none of that's devolved exactly. and so you have you have other parts of the UK that would like to do this better yeah. and then all of your legal aid systems are sort of downstream from that and having to somehow respond and mm. so it's it's a really sort of damaging aspect of devolution that although you might have control over legal aid and have better policies around legal aid in Northern Ireland, in Scotland and in Wales than we do in England. You're stuck with UK immigration policy. So I'm not sure how encouraging we've been thus far for listeners thinking about getting into immigration, but I'm sure you have some encouraging words. I would definitely say social welfare law and immigration and asylum law is absolutely the best thing. You will never find a more meaningful and fulfilling and rewarding line of work than actually changing the world and changing the life of someone who's really vulnerable and maybe gone through things that most of us can't even imagine. Um, I absolutely loved it. I loved bail applications. I loved injunctions and getting someone off a flight to somewhere. Um, you know, telling people's stories in, in an immigration or asylum tribunal. Um, I loved my clients. It's an absolutely brilliant area of work to be in. And um, and the thing is, it might be that like me, you don't stay in practice forever. But it opens so many doors. And I couldn't have done what I'm doing now in academia without having had that career in practice. So, you know, the work I did when I was at Bristol Law Centre, the work I did when I was an advocate at Bristol Mind, and then the work I've done as a barrister, it gives you, you know, it gives you all of this other experience and expertise and contacts that you Mm -hmm. can then take on into an academic career or an NGO career or anything else. So I think you don't have to now think of one career as being for your whole life. And that's certainly what I say to my kids. Yeah. Just don't think about what you want to do for your whole life. Think about, you know, what you want to do for now. And that's, um, that's, not, that's not necessarily switching from one thing to another all the time because you can see it takes us for a logical path um, and it's always going to be different things for different times maybe when you're single you want to do something different from when you've got yeah. children and maybe you go back to mm-hmm. something more kind of intensive after you've had the kids or maybe you don't want to have mm-hmm. kids and you want to stay in that way you know there's so many doors that open Absolutely. as a result of the legal career so it's just I, I always encourage everyone 
to do it and give it a go. And if it doesn't end up being for you forever, it's a pathway Mm. to something else. Absolutely. It's a hard graft, but ultimately very, very, very rewarding. I think everybody would agree with you on that that works within the area. And just finally, a question that we ask all of our guests in terms of activism and and the law how do they mesh do they mesh do they merge well and how do you think activism can be used as a tool to affect change within within the law and within policies that affect all of us it it became a kind of a dirty word didn't it it was it did. like it was used We're trying as to an it back. <laughs> i came into the law from being an activist yeah. you know an environmental activist a peace activist and and kind of um, that was my introduction to the law and seeing that the law could be used in that way. Um, and I think I think you have to use it in that way. You can't just, you know, the idea that you can be a passive lawyer, yeah. you just sit there and wait for things to happen. What's the point in you? I think if you're not trying to make the world or your society a better place, you know, one person at a time or by the bigger policy challenges, then what's the point in you? So I absolutely think they mesh. They don't always mesh comfortably. You know, if you're an asylum lawyer, you might at some point be called on um, to represent someone who you think, you know, who was an arms dealer. And actually, you don't think they're a very nice person. And, you know, that it's not always comfortable to uphold the rule of law but that I mean that is an activist thing if ever there was one yeah I think they're one and the same really the same well look thank you so much for today it's been fascinating um although quite um a stark (laughs) reminder of the world within which we work and our, our our colleagues but the struggle is real but I think with people like you and lots of the other activists around who are working on these issues to try and in some way mend the system and address the system um we thank you Joe for your work and we look forward to following um your research and further findings on this and wish you all the very best in your work around this area thanks so much for letting me talk about it as you can tell I love you do (laughs) (laughs) thank you Joe. this podcast was recorded in granite podcast studio interested in starting up your own podcast but don't know how Granite Podcast Studio can help. Record your podcast in our state-of-the-art studio, which is based in the heart of Newry City. Our studio has cutting-edge and user-friendly technology and can seat up to four people. We also provide an editing service for our team using your guidance and editing notes to provide you with a flawless finished product, leaving your listeners wanting more. For more information on how you can get started, visit www.granitepodcaststudio.com.